Have you ever found yourself in a situation where maybe you felt like speaking out for the Lord, but then you thought, you know, I'm not sure that I can say what I want to say without looking dumb. Or, I have something I'd like to say right now, but I'm afraid I might get asked a question that I won't know how to answer. Or maybe you thought of getting involved in some project or ministry of the church, but then thought, well, I don't really have the skills or hardly any skills to be doing anything in that way. Doubting your ability, you know, or your skill or your aptitude, you know, to serve the Lord. Have you ever thought of yourself as someone who is unqualified to be a spokesperson for Jesus Christ or the Christian faith? You ever felt like, no, I, I can't do that. I'm not on that level. Well, there's this great passage of Scripture that speaks to this issue. It's a part of our Easter series, actually. And this morning we will be ending our Easter series in John chapter 21. We've been looking into the things that have led up to the death and resurrection of Christ in these last few weeks. And we've celebrated his resurrection and what he has done after his resurrection as he prepares his disciples to move on without him. This morning we're going to be looking at an incident where the resurrected Jesus meets up with several of his disciples and says very, very important to them about ministering for him. So if you'll follow along, I'll read John chapter 21 and verses 1 through 14. John 21 and verses 1 through 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. That sounds like something you've heard before. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and that would be John the Apostle. He referred to himself in his gospel as the one Jesus loved. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. Second. 
When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we are here after the resurrection of Christ. And we are here with the disciples, and as a group, they've already encountered Jesus two times, and now they are encountering him a third time as a group. And it wasn't all the disciples. I counted seven as I read it. But they were fishing all night long, and they caught nothing. And early in the morning, they see a man standing on the shore, and he asks them, haven't you caught anything? They say no. He tells them to throw the net on the right side of the boat. They do so, and they catch so many fish, they can't even pull the net up into the boat. It's too heavy. And the apostle John says to Peter, that has to be the Lord. (laughs) Now, you probably remember something like this happening before. It was when Jesus basically first met the disciples He was teaching on a shoreline, and the people were kind of crowding him, so he asked, well, he just got into Peter's boat, and he started teaching from the boat. Then when he he was finished teaching, he told Peter to take him out into the sea a little bit, and then he said, throw your net in. Peter said, we've been fishing here all night and haven't caught a thing. He goes, "I, I, I respect what you're saying, but we've tried, and it didn't work. Now, of course, this is at the beginning when Jesus first met these people. And so, of course, they they put the nets in, pulled them up, and there was enough to sink two boats, and they had to just barely make it into shore. But now, here we are going through this, what we just read, seems very similar. They've been with Jesus now, what probably seems like a lifetime worth of experiences to be with Jesus, you know, seeing all of his miracles, hearing his teachings, seeing him combat the religious leaders, seeing him help people and seeing people coming to him for help. And then, of course, they saw him brutally beaten and killed. And now they've seen him alive from the dead. But it isn't like before because, you know, before he was with them all the time. Now it's so different. Before, he was teaching them, showing them things, explaining things to them. Now, he's just appearing to them occasionally, and it looks like always unannounced. But here again, in our story, he appears to them after a whole night of fruitless fishing, empty nets. And again, he tells them to cast their net into the same area where they had been fishing all night, and caught absolutely nothing. 
And so it takes you back to that first time. And so they throw it in, and again they experience a record-breaking catch of fish. And I think that Jesus is replaying for them how it all started off in the first place. He's reminding him, him, them of his power over nature. He's reminding him, them of his power as the Son of God. Because he's getting ready to officially send them out as his ambassadors to take the message of the gospel to the whole world. And I believe he wants to, him, them to remember him for who he is as they first met him and he empowered them to catch a, a load of fish that they couldn't have caught on their own. A show of his power. And here is what I think makes this miracle so powerful, so meaningful, and so encouraging. If you look at it, Jesus turns a night of utter fishing failure into a night of overwhelming success. Record-setting success. And I believe what it teaches us is that we have this enormous power of Christ behind our weak human attempts to reach people or to affect people for Christ. Jesus turned a night of boring, maybe frustrating, disappointing fishing into a morning of gladness and success and joy. And it wasn't due to the human cleverness of the fishermen, was it? It wasn't due to their advanced skills. It wasn't due to their impressive techniques or because they invited somebody famous to come along with them. It was ordinary fishermen on a fruitless night of fishing seeing their efforts explode by the power of Christ working through simple faith. Okay, we'll throw it in, but we don't think it's going to do any good. And I think that is what we can experience when we take steps of faith not knowing the outcome. Even when we aren't sure how our neighbor will respond to some act of kindness. Or a kind word or gesture in a time of need or hurt. Or the sharing of a Bible verse when we feel kind of shy to do so to somebody who maybe doesn't think much of the Bible. Or some comment about the goodness of God to somebody who doesn't really like to go to church. And we may feel very inadequate at that moment. We may feel the other person will think we are, you know, kind of a religious nut. Or maybe scared that they will ask us a question we don't have the answer to. But you know, we never know when one word we say or one action we take or one experience we get involved in with somebody that may seem so minor and so inconsequential or they may even respond with a look that makes you think that they think you're crazy. But then God uses that very phrase or opportunity to get that person to think just, to, just, just jog their minds to start thinking a certain way and start maybe moving into more serious thinking. 
You know, I've heard salvation stories that begin with incidents like that that seem like they were just going to go nowhere or seem very negative, and all of a sudden, it turns into somebody's salvation. And I've shared this before, but it's been a long time. But <clears throat> in our, the last community we lived in, where we were, I was pastoring in a small country church, there was this lady of the community that had gone way off, away from the Lord. I'm, I, I doubt if she was a Christian. Uh, but she had gotten into a lot of immorality and drinking and then left her husband and moved away and was, had all kinds of re- bad reports about her. And so this, this man had gotten remarried and had kids with another wife. But then while we were there in that community... Uh, she got cancer, and it was pretty extensive, and she only had a few months to live. And so the daughter took her into her home, and she asked me if I'd come visit her, which I was very happy to do, and I don't think I'd met her before that. So we got to meet, and we got to talk, and then we decided to have a Bible study, a weekly Bible study. And so I started going up, and I got to know her through that, and we were having pleasant conversations. But at one point, fairly soon in the Bible study, and I, I wasn't with her a long time because she passed away, but she said, well, I believe that if you are sincere, then that's all that matters. It doesn't really what you believe in. It matters what you're sincere, you know, your level of your sincerity. That's what God will accept. And so, you know, I'm not a quick thinker. Uh, I always lose those battles, you know, when people are trying to think quick. But I guess the Lord gave this to me, and I said, well, do you think that's true with Satanists? She just kind of stopped. She didn't say anything. And we kept having our Bible studies, and then a few months down the road... And she was getting worse, and we had to keep skipping times and stuff because she was getting sicker. But months down the road, she said, you know that thing you said about believing in Satan and sincerity? I said, yeah. She goes, I've been thinking about that. And, you know, I'd forgotten about it almost. And she said, I think, I think that's right. I go, so you think that Jesus is the Savior? She goes, yeah. And so, weeks later, she's really gone downhill. And they've called the family in. And hospice is there. And the hospice nurse is there. And this lady was a real fighter. So, <clears throat> she was dying. You know, it, it was very evident she was dying. And she was in the bedroom and... Different ones of us would go in there, you know, take a turn, go talk to her, pray with her, that sort of thing. And right in the act of dying, you know, it took hours. And the, and the nurse was saying, honey, just let go. And I, I asked her, I said, I said, Karen, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? She, she goes, yes. She just kept saying yes every time. I asked her a bunch of times. And because she was kind of going in and out. And then as she was fading away, the nurse said, she goes, honey, 
just go home and be with Jesus now. And she died. And, you know, it was at the very end of a real horrible life. And it was just basically one statement that just came to me at that time. And I think that can happen all over the place. On times that we don't even remember, times we don't think about, it would, it would be so effective. And times we may never even know it happened where the person turned. It could have been one step in that person's life that made him start facing toward God. Or it could be, you know, the first step of 15 people talking to them. You know, who knows? But just to give, uh, you know, a, a word from the Lord or a word about the Lord. He can take that small act of faith and transform it into a life-changing experience. Like he multiplied the fish. Or like he gave them fish from a place where there were no fish. I want you to remember what Peter's response was to Jesus and this was back in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus told him the first time to throw the nets into the water. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And this is when the, the two boats almost sunk from all the fish that they, they brought in. Now you see, we may feel unqualified to make a difference but God can take something seemingly too simple to make that difference or change and change a person's life or maybe one step in the person's life being changed now another major factor that fits into this part of the gospel is the fact that when Jesus could have used most could have most used his help from the disciples the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest and beatings and court hearings, the night of his horrible agony in the garden, the time when he could have used their help more than any other time, all of his closest friends scattered into the darkness, leaving him alone. So now the Apostle John tells how Jesus takes care of this matter before he ascends into heaven. And let's look at verses 15, John 21, 15 through 17. This is after the meal. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's always debate over what he means by these. I think it means, do you love me? You know, you say that you love me more than anybody else here. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He is commissioning Peter to lead this group of followers 
the 12, well, yeah, the, the apostles, who will become actually the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And many think that he is doing it three times because there was three times that Peter denied him so he could counter those three denials. And I think that's pretty plausible. I also think that just the fact that Jesus asks Peter three times the same question, it seems like each time he asks it, it just goes deeper into Peter's being. In fact, you know, at the end, Peter is hurt that Jesus asks him a third time. He says, Lord, you know, you know all things. You know I love you. And Peter's thinking, why does he keep asking? But I'm sure that Peter never, ever forgot that time when Jesus asked three times and never let up and said, Peter, do you love me? Now, I've also thought that it is significant, the question that Jesus asked Peter. I would have thought Jesus would ask Peter something more like, okay, Peter, are you recovered from your, your little fiasco? Has your faith strengthened now? Are you more determined now? Are you really ready to follow me? You promise not to run away anymore? Have you thought long and hard about what you did? Jesus doesn't ask him anything like that. That would be my first thought. Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And I can see why Peter felt hurt. That question seems to penetrate much deeper than Peter can you be stronger now? Do you feel braver now? So maybe that would be a good question for us to ask ourselves. To ask ourselves with regard to our Christian faith and our dedication to Christ. Do I love Jesus? Yeah, sure. I love Jesus. Do I really love Jesus? Uh, yeah. Do I really, really love Jesus? I think so. I believe this shows what is the true foundation of a believer's strong relationship to Christ. You know, sometimes we can get caught up in the rules, right? But I believe this really shows how strong is our love for him. And I believe it would also be a stronger deterrent from falling into sin. That's what I've always thought about the apostles. Because they knew Jesus personally. And they walked with him. And they talked with him. And they ate with him. And so for them to walk off into sin was betrayal. To their friend. To their best friend. To the one who loved them most. And so I think, really, do we really, really love Jesus? I think it would be a stronger deterrent.
And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he is going to die for the sake of the cross. That's in verses 18 and 19. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. That shows us that Jesus was calling Peter to be willing to give up his life for him. His living life for him and then his life in death. And history tells us that Peter certainly did. So Peter learned to truly, truly love Jesus. And I think at the end there, well, at the end, it's true, he did not run away from Jesus, did he? Like in the garden. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to say about these verses before we move on to our last couple of verses. When we read the Gospels, we don't get the most glowing picture of the disciples of Jesus, as we all know, right? Now, they do stay with him throughout their time, and that, that counts for a lot. You know, they're hanging in there with all the, all the stuff that's going on, all the attacks that they receive and everything. That's a very positive remark, that perseverance. But boy, do they make a lot of mistakes along the way. And the gospel writers aren't shy about putting, pointing out those mistakes. And even the, the writers of the epistles aren't shy about pointing out their own mistakes. And then when Jesus is going through tremendous suffering in the garden, they fall asleep. When he's arrested, they run for the hills. When Peter is questioned, he denies he knows him. But think of all that. Think of all the mistakes they made. Everything Jesus had to try to bring them over. But here is Jesus gathering these same ones back together again to send them out as his primary ambassadors to be the foundation of the church. He's bringing back these who, who bungled and bumbled and everything and he's making them his top spokesmen the very foundation of the church. And he gives them the keys, to the, the keys to the kingdom, the gospel message. That seems somewhat wild to me. You know, the people he picked, the failures they experienced, the mistakes they made, seems to make them pretty unqualified. I wonder how many... You know, tests they would, would pass if people were just searching for a church leader or something. And then he commissions them to be his key workers. That's amazing. But look at the church. I mean, everything we see in the apostles, we see in all of us, don't we? In all the churches. But look at the church. 
It's all over the whole world. It started in one tiny place in Jerusalem or in, in Israel. And now it's over the whole world. And people try to stomp it out wherever it goes, almost wherever it goes. And they make laws against it. And they burn their books. And they break into houses and chase people down and kill them. But God said, this is his plan. And these are the people he chose. And now it is all over the world. And nobody can stomp it out. But, you know, here's another part of the encouragement. We are also part of this grand design. Even with all of our flaws and mistakes and mess-ups. And God is enlisting us into his worldwide program. And his salvation plan to bring everybody who comes to him into the eternal kingdom. And he wants us, he wants to use us to continue to add to the building of his church. But... What if we have failed or made serious mistakes? I say, join the club. That makes us just like the apostles. And he can use us too, can't he? So, think twice before you disqualify yourself. Think again before you back out of something just because you think, ah, I might not say the right thing. And there are times that we need to repent. There are times if we get into something bad, we can't just go around, you know, preaching Jesus if we have a bad reputation. But we can repent and we can come back. And then we need to get back into the game. Do we love him? Do we really love him? Do we really, really love him? And so here's our last couple of verses. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return... What is that to you? <clears throat> so as you can imagine, Peter, you know, Jesus is giving him this very, very serious talk about, Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? Laying a pretty heavy load onto Peter. Feed my sheep. One day, Peter, you will die for me. So I think... It would have been real easy for Peter to think, how can I get this, all this attention off of me? He sees John falling behind. What about him, Lord? <laughs> can, we, can we move the spotlight a little bit over here? But Jesus gives him a, a pretty important lesson for all of us. 
Look, if I choose for him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You know, our first and foremost concern and responsibility is of, for ourselves, right? When God gives us something to do in the church or in our place of work or in our family, whatever area of life, we are first to make certain that we are being faithful and what we have been given as our responsibility. Our focus should be on ourselves and that which God has given us to do. But often we want to look around at others and compare our situation to theirs, our workload to theirs, our payments to theirs. And if there's any discrepancy, we think, that's not fair. I feel cheated. And Jesus says, just do what I've given you to do. And so the temptation to become bitter and to compare, we should just avoid that as much as possible, comparing ourselves to others, just to make sure that we're doing what we are supposed to be doing, what God expects of us. And just remember, if I want him to remain, that isn't your, your thing to worry about. And the last point is, in the early church, because of the statement by Jesus, the believers mistakenly believed that, that John would not die, but he didn't really say that, did he? <clears throat> we now know that not, that's not what Christ meant. And that is just the danger we, we run into when we assume something in the Bible, even though it doesn't clearly say that. So we want to look at the Bible seriously and be careful of not going beyond what it actually says. And we know that gets people in trouble today. But our question this morning is, who is qualified to speak for the Lord? And the basic answer is, the believer who is following Christ and being faithful to Him. And they don't have to have a degree in evangelism, they don't have to be a seminary professor or a big-name person. But if we love Jesus and are following him, we can speak for him. We can point people to him. We can say a word for him. And we can do a simple act of kindness in his name. And he can take that simple act of kindness and just enlarge it into a boat-sinking catch of fish. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the Gospels and how much they reveal and how much they give us to live on and to think about and to put into our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to live according to the principles of your word. Help us to just concentrate on ourselves first and foremost Make sure we're doing what you want us to do. Help us to speak for you, even when we think we're not qualified. And help us to follow you and help feed your lambs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.